0: I want to make sure that uh, any of you who has not seen our featured exhibition, Chinese American Exclusion Inclusion, returns during regular museum hours. It is uh, truly an important and um, revelatory show uh, about the history of Chinese in America, with um, I think many surprises for many people. On view as well is a a great show of photographs, iconic American photographs by Annie Leibovitz. And uh, No doubt on your way in this evening you saw Toys and Trains from the Dream Collection, now New York Historical's great collection of Toys and Trains. Um, If you return during regular museum hours, you'll actually see them moving and in action. And if you haven't been already with your children, grandchildren, nieces and nephews and young friends, you will surely want to do so. And I also want to make sure that anyone who isn't yet a member of the New York Historical Society joins. My colleagues are happy to help you do that. After the program, uh, your membership helps support great programs like this one and all the work that we do at the New York Historical Society. Tonight's program, Presidential Leaders Ulysses S. Grant, is part of our Bernard and Armin Schwartz Distinguished Speaker Series. And as always, I'd like to thank Mr. Schwartz for his great generous support, which has enabled us to bring so many fine historians and writers to this auditorium. Also... You must have snuck in, Bernard. (laughs) I didn't see you, but thank you so much again. Um, I also want to uh, acknowledge and thank uh, colleagues of uh, Bernard Schwartz is on our board of trustees, the chair of our executive committee and our great visionary former chair, Roger Hertog, who is here together with his wife, the biographer, Susan Hertog. And um, I would also like to recognize other trustees in attendance this evening, Glenn Louis and Michael Weisberg, um, and thank them for all the incredible work that they do on behalf of this great institution. Thanks to all of you. I'm also really thrilled to have in our audience Harold Holzer, the Hertog Fellow, and uh, our chief historian on an upcoming exhibition this spring, Lincoln and the Jews, which I know you will not want to miss. And of course, Harold has been a great mainstay of our Schwartz series programs, and Ron Chernow, who is writing a book on the topic of tonight's um, uh, tonight's presentation, tonight's program, and um, we're always thrilled to have you among us. Thanks so much. Tonight's program will last about an hour, and it will include a question-and-answer session. We ask, as always, that you line up before a standing mic to my left and to my right in the aisles. We do that so that everyone in the audience can hear your question, the speaker on stage can hear your question, and those listening to the program on our podcast can hear everything as well. Uh, Following the program, please do join us for a book signing with tonight's speakers. The books will be available for purchase in our museum store. We are very pleased indeed to welcome back uh, to this auditorium John F. Marzalek, who is the Giles Distinguished Professor, History Emeritus at Mississippi State University and the Executive Director and Managing Editor of the Ulysses S. Grant Association, which has published 32 volumes of the papers of Ulysses S. Grant. He is the author or editor of numerous books, including Sherman, A Soldier's Passion for Order, which was a finalist for the Lincoln Prize, and the recently published Lincoln and the Military. In 2004, the Mississippi Historical Society presented Dr. Marzalek with with its highest award, the BLC Wales Award for National Distinction in History. Our moderator for this evening is Douglas Brinkley, Professor of History at Rice University, and presidential historian for CBS News. Dr. Brinkley serves as contributing editor for Vanity Fair, Audubon, and American Heritage, and he is a frequent contributor to The New York Times, Foreign Affairs, The New Yorker, and The Atlantic Monthly. Uh, Dr. Brinkley is also a best-selling author. His definitive biography of CBS News anchorman, Cronkite, was deemed one of the best books of 2012 by The Washington Post. And no fewer than eight of his books have been selected as New York Times Notable Books of the Year. As always, I'd like to ask that you please make sure that anything that makes uh, sound like a cell phone is switched off. And now, please do join me in welcoming our speakers to the stage. Thank you.
1: Well, good evening, everybody. And I'm uh, very excited to be here and have a, a conversation about Ulysses S. Grant's leadership in America. And I wanted to begin, John, by let beam us back to when Grant is first inaugurated. It's 1869. And Grant says, let us have peace. Why is that line so iconic? And what was he talking about?
2: Okay. Very good. And I'd like to just thank everyone else for being invited back here to talk about someone I've really gotten very interested in, Ulysses S. Grant. Uh, many of you know, of course, he's, he's known as a, as a great general of the Civil War, and but most people don't realize that from 1865 to 1869, he was the commanding general of uh, the United States Army, and he served in the presidency of uh, Andrew Johnson. Uh, when the time came for the Republicans, who were the leading party at this time, to choose a presidential candidate, Grant was the obvious, obvious choice, and there was really no one, no one else. But the intriguing thing, I think, is that Grant himself did not want to run for president. He really was not a politician, uh, which hurt him down the road. But he, he, he decided that he had to uh, because he thought that he was one of the only people that could preserve the results of the Civil War. He was afraid that if the quote unquote politicians were elected president that there would not be the this, uh, this same uh, good result of the, of the Civil War. And when he said, and when he accepted the nomination from the Republican Party, let 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 us have peace, really what he was talking about were several things. He was talking about the North and the South coming back together. But interestingly, too, he was also referring to the problems of the Andrew Johnson presidency. Uh, When he said, let us have peace, he hoped that his administration would not be like the administration of Andrew Johnson with a lot of arguing between the president and the Congress. So you have, I think at the very beginning, uh, Doug, uh, you have a situation where Ulysses S. Grant is foretelling some things that are going to happen, some things that are going to be good, and some things are not going to be so good.
1: Take a look at the two, you know, the presidents just before him. What was Grant's relationship with Lincoln like? And what did he learn about leadership from Lincoln?
2: Okay, yeah, l- the relationship between Lincoln and Grant is one of those fascinating things. M- most people don't realize that Grant and Lincoln didn't even meet until Lincoln called Grant to Washington. Uh, to offer him the, uh, the commanding generalship of all, all the Union armies. So he really didn't know Lincoln. He didn't quite know what, what this guy was like and his, his good buddy uh, William Tecumseh Sherman thought early on that Lincoln was a loser, uh, that he, he didn't understand how difficult this war was going to be. But I think it's fair to say that what developed very quickly was a great relationship between Grant and uh, Lincoln, and maybe the relationship was great because they both agreed on how this war ought to be fought, that there needed to be a change. You couldn't continue this old way of fighting this gentlemanly war, that the war had to be brought to a conclusion. I think Lincoln in the Emancipation Proclamation signaled that this war was going to become not a total war, but a war where society, not just the armies, uh, uh, would be involved. So a long answer to to a good question is the relationship between Lincoln and Grant grew very, very close. And I think, too, that Grant came to see in Lincoln an individual who understood what was going on in the nation and what had to be done you know, there's a famous belief that uh, Lincoln just let Grant do whatever he wanted to do when he became uh, commanding general. But in fact, uh, Grant, Lincoln did not have to intervene very often with Grant because he knew Grant agreed with his philosophy of war, so he pretty much let him go. When he made that famous statement, uh, uh, well, you don't have to tell me. I don't want to know, you know what, what your plans are. The reason he said that because he knew what Grant's plans were going to be and they were going to follow pretty much what Lincoln would have wanted.
1: I grew up in Ohio and we claim Grant (laughs) as one of our presidents. In fact, (laughs) there's a movement to get a presidential library on all the Ohio presidents corralled into one in Columbus which would include... Hayes and all. It, it, it's not getting funded right now, but, it, it, <laughs> but if you pull it up on the Internet, you will find, uh, you'll find it in some form of operation. But how did, Where did Grant see himself from? He, he was born in Ohio, but he had the, the whole Missouri story, and of course here in New York uh, became his great home. Uh, did he have a place, um, a treasured landscape,
2: or a place that he, he really identified with? If he identified with, with any, that's a great question. But if he identified with any place, I think it would be more with Missouri. And that would be, I think, because of his wife. That's where he met Julia. And they were madly in love with one another right to the, uh, uh, right to the very end. His interest in Ohio, interesting, uh, interestingly enough, is not as great. Illinois, of course, he lived in, too. And there, there wasn't much feeling toward, uh, uh, toward Illinois. He loved living in New York but that was at the end of his life so I think maybe the best answer to that, that question is there really is no place that that uh, that uh, uh, Grant claimed as his own now we like to think in Mississippi uh, that he claims <laughs> Mississippi as his home uh, but that's probably debatable
1: how incidentally because we're curious how does the, your, your how did you get the grant? presidential library in Mississippi. <laughs> how, how, what was the, how were you able to do that?
2: <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's, that's one of those great questions <laughs> and, uh, that, uh, that I'll try to keep to a minimum answer anyway. Uh, what actually happened, many of you know who John Y. Simon uh, was. John Y. was the longtime executive director of the Grant Association. In fact, we have a a unique situation, we're over, the Grand Association is over 50 years old, we've only had two presidents, Ralph Newman, who you know, the very famous bookseller, as he liked to call himself, in Illinois, and Frank Williams, the retired Chief Justice of the Rhode Island Supreme Court. Well, we also only had two um, executive directors, John Y. Simon, and then some guy who was at Mississippi State took over. Uh, when John unfortunately uh, passed away. But to make a long story short, the reason that the Grant, now presidential library, is at Mississippi State, because even before John Y. Simon died, the Grant Association had determined that they were gonna move the collection someplace else. Uh, It's a very long, involved uh, story, and it actually took uh, legal action uh, to get the material from Southern Illinois University, where it had been for a long time, to someplace else. And it turned out to be uh, Mississippi State University. But it took a court action. and Part of the court action uh, includes a, an out-of-court settlement, actually, a gag order, which basically says nobody from Southern Illinois and nobody from uh, uh, the Grant Association can talk about what happened. <laughs> so, if, you know, if, if you want... To send me up upriver here to Sing Sing, I'd be happy to answer <laughs> your, your question. But uh, it, it's 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 a very complicated uh, very complicated thing, and there were a number of people involved. And uh, Frank Williams, the president of the Grand Association, uh, Francis Coleman, the dean of the libraries at Mississippi State, actually three different uh, university presidents uh, were involved in this, and I had some uh, some role to play in this. And of course, the board of directors of the Grand Association. But why did it end up in Mississippi? I think it ended up in Mississippi because Mississippi State University made the best offer. Uh, and that has a lot of... In Vicksburg,
1: the National Park Service does a wonderful interpretive job at right. Vicksburg. So ostensibly, somebody could do a vacation, and go to Vicksburg and Shiloh, and then visit the presidential library. Right. So there is a connection.
2: There is that connection.
1: In Vicksburg, the, Theodore Roosevelt used to talk about my crowded hour When he was was in uh, Kettle Hill and San Juan Hill in the Spanish American War. Is Vicksburg, um, Grant's crowded hour, the great moment in
2: Yeah, No question about it. In fact, the the president of Mississippi State University, Mark Keenum, uh, likes to tell people that if it wasn't for Mississippi, Nobody had ever heard of ulysses S. grant <laughs> <laughs> and that's because obviously because of uh, because of Vicksburg, but we do we have a great relationship with with vicksburg we have a great relationship with uh, Shiloh we've done some teachers' institutes with them we've done a lot of other things so yeah it, it it is it's worked out perfectly now let's we all have a
1: kind of a, a image of Grant, but i 'm going to ask you a kind of quick series of questions uh, you mentioned his wife, Julia. Did he ever have any affairs, Grant, or is that marriage
2: a strong marriage? The marriage was a very strong marriage. In fact, I, I hate, to, hate to put it this way, actually, but if you, if you look at a picture of Julia Grant, uh, you don't think of Marilyn Monroe or you know, anybody like that. It's just not, she's, she is not a knockout. Can I, can I put it that way? Um, She's a very interesting woman, but, but Grant is madly in love with her throughout their entire life. In fact, one of the most intriguing things that, uh, that, I, that I found, anyway, about their relationship is that uh, uh, they would hold hands during state dinners when he was president. And his staff would say, oh, my gosh, Mr. God, Mr. President, don't, don't, don't do that. But there was this great, great relationship between the, uh, the two. And Grant was very much of a family man. And there's a great story when, uh, when they're going into the White House. Uh, you may know that uh, Julia Grant had, there's a fancy name for it, but one of her eyes was not quite aligned uh, carefully. So if you look at pictures of her, she almost always is facing to one side or another, so you can't see both eyes, so you can't see that there's a problem. When well, she goes to her husband, uh, when they're going to the White House, and she says, you know, Yuli, she called him, or Uless, uh, you know, the president deserves an attractive wife, and I don't have that quality, so I'm going to have surgery on that eye to straighten it out. Now, this is 1868, 69. I don't know about you, but I don't want to have any surgery on my eye today, <laughs> let, alone, let alone And Grant responded to that by saying, Julia, I met you with that eye, I fell in love with you with that <laughs> eye, and you're going to go into the White House with that eye. I absolutely refused to, to accept the fact that you'd have any surgery. So, she still won out, as most wives do, by never facing the camera, always, almost always looking off to one side. So, yeah yeah so there is there's this very great and uh, no there's never never been any indication. Sherman, there have been some indications, but not Grant.
1: What about the charges that he was drunk? you hear that a lot that he was a heavy drinker
2: and is it mythology or did he drink a lot it's It's part mythology and part reality. Um, Grant really was not a drinker until he was stationed before. Uh, the war, before the Civil War, after the Mexican War, up in, on the in the Pacific coast, in the middle of, absolutely middle of nowhere. And he's madly in love with Julia. They have children, he can't see his children. She writes him about the children, he writes back. And it was at that time that he began drinking. And Grant had a problem, uh, as most officers had at that time, What did most army officers do with these isolated posts? They drank. I mean, that was the recreation, basically. Uh, In this particular case, uh, Grant did drink, but Grant had a major problem, I think, in that he couldn't hold his alcohol. He wasn't a drunkard so much as he was a lightweight. Uh, He just couldn't, couldn't drink very hard. Now, the story about his being a drunk comes from a a story, which is apocryphal, a reporter named Cadwallader, I'm going to ask uh, Harold to pronounce that for me and explain that to me, but Cadwallader wrote a a story basically in 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 a volume that Grant was an alcoholic, that he was soused to the gills at Vicksburg, and he saw it, and everybody saw it. Well, the problem with that is Cadwilder was not there during that time. And he wrote this remembrance 40 years afterwards. So did Grant drink afterwards? We really don't find many references to this. Uh, One reference we do find is that he wouldn't even drink wine at state dinners. Well, of course he did sometimes. the problem was he came to realize that he just could not drink because it would So the,
1: that reputation came from people witnessing him when he was uh, a general or what wh- why well, did that become so such a the, tag on
2: him Yeah well part of the part of the problem is uh, uh Rawlins, who is his chief of staff and a close friend saw himself as his guardian I guess to keep him from drinking and there was there was an instance where where, where uh, Rawlins found some wine bottles outside Grant's uh, tent. No indication of anything particularly going on, but he found these, uh, found these bottles. And Rawlins uh, was a very stern sort of an individual, and he came from a family whose father was an alcoholic. And there may have been some sort of things like this, but to find actual references to Grant drinking are, are pretty rare. Sherman once said, and Sherman was a good friend of his, said, "Yeah, Grant will drink once in a while, but it doesn't affect his judgment, and he bounces right back." So it's it's one of these things. I think it's more mythology than it is reality, but there may have been some reality there.
1: No. It's- Getting back to the presidency of Grant, what, what are you? Know, he, he was a lot of historians beat up on him for a while. And yeah. He's had a comeback. Right. Um, and you're part of the comeback, bringing out all these wonderful volumes of, of the Grant papers. Um, let's look at a couple aspects of his, his leadership yeah. as president. And foreign affairs, what's the, what's the argument that Grant was a good foreign policy president?
2: Yeah. That, I, think, I think he was very successful in foreign policy, primarily, I would think, uh, the Alabama claims controversy. Uh, you may already be aware of this, but what it came down to, as you know, during the Civil War, uh, the British were building ships and then secretly releasing them, and then the Confederacy would use them against northern shipping, et cetera. So after the war, there are any number of Americans that are saying, we gotta put it to those British for what they did to us during the, during the Civil War. So one thing led to another, it's a complicated case, but there were negotiations. There was actually arbitration that was settled on between Grant and the Grant administration and the, the, uh, the British administration. Um, Charles Sumner, the very famous senator, uh, among others, said, no, we've got we to get something for this. And I think it would be a great idea if we got Canada, uh, you know, for, if, to make up for what went on. Well, Grant took a very firm stand and said, no, no, we really don't need to do that. Now, there was some money that the British gained, but it was a compromise. So I think what Grant did by compromising that situation opened the way For the next century or so of good relations between uh, between Great Britain and uh, and the United States.
1: Where, where did he get his leadership qualities? I mean, here's this, you know, how did was it from books? Was it from his equestrian skills, mastering a horse? Was it? Um, just his hard scrabbled life his home, right? Was called hard scrabbled for yeah, a while. Right. Um, right. So, you know, where does he get that leadership where, that he's able to pull off uh, of Vicksburg and pull off a victory in the Civil War and run as president so successfully?
2: Yeah, I think that, that that's again an excellent question, and it's one of those questions that I don't know if anybody will ever <laughs> be able to answer completely. Uh, Grant was an enigma. Grant was unknown to himself uh, in many ways. Where did he get this quality? I think part of it is just plain character. He had the character to know that he had to do something and he would do it. There's a very famous uh, statement that he made uh, and it has to do with, uh, with his wife, in fact. Uh, he was getting ready to go to the Mexican War and he decides, I got to pull the trigger." I've got to ask her to to get married. I've got to talk to her father and and all these sorts of things. So he's at Jefferson Barracks in St. Louis. She is living not all that far away in the St. Louis area. So he gets on board his horse, and he rides as fast as he can to try to get to that place before he's going to have to to leave. Well, there was a big rainstorm, and this creek that is still there uh, flooded, and, and Grant comes to this, and he, but what am I going to do? I can't cross this, this creek. So what he did is he looked for a while, and then he just pushed his horse into the current and fought the current and got to the other side. And in his memoirs, he makes a very, very interesting statement. He said, you know, I learned early in my life that once I began something, I would not quit. I would not turn back. And I think that's part of the, part of the story of his military uh, success. He, he, he saw what had to be done. He saw he was going to have to do it, whether it was Vicksburg or maybe even better, what was going on in Virginia, the famous episode where uh, he attacks Lee in Virginia and is driven back. And normally what would happen at that time, the Union generals would say, okay, let's go back and let's get started again and let's get going. And Grant didn't. Grant just said, we're going to go forward. And in fact, despite the awful killing that went on on both sides during that time, his troops cheered him that they were going to keep moving forward. And that's what he did. As a, as a general, no matter what it was, he kept moving forward, moving forward, moving forward. So I think the, the character, the, the determination that he had is, explains why he's the successful general. Now, when it comes to being president, he's not as successful, although historians are saying that he's the first modern uh, president. A lot of things that he did were being done for the first time in American, in American history. But he didn't have that same no turnaround determination as president because I think he believed that considering what had happened during the Andrew Johnson presidency, all the argument that went on, he had to make sure that the nation stayed calm, that the nation would recover From this civil war, and as a result, he didn't push for some things as much as he wanted to. And maybe he wasn't so dumb because, again, the good presidents are those who understand public opinion and deal with public opinion. And I think that's what he did.
1: Well, and you, you're, you know, this idea of him being uh, kind of rough and ready, um, but then we see, as you just said, uh, his restraint with the idea of uh, taking Canada. His yeah. restraint at Appomattox of not uh, punishing Lee—a uh, great, um, you know in, in talk about leadership at Appomattox. He was so—it's a remarkable piece of diplomacy. Yeah. There, where does that come from? How do you become this hard scrabbled rough and ready, go go go? Yet you, you know how to put on the brakes, and it doesn't define
2: your character. Is that the enigma there? That's part, of, I yeah. think that's part of the part of the enigma too. But I think he understood that the Civil War would only be successful if the nation could end it and come together uh, uh, as a whole uh, again and not have continuing arguments. Now, Grant, Grant has, has some, a major problem in his presidency. Number one, he has got to figure out, some way to bring the North and South back together, but at the same time, he's a great believer in the African-Americans, former slaves, now free, that they should be a part of this society. And so he's trying to figure out how he can push one way and yet not push too far. And keep in mind, too, in all fairness, at this time, both the North and the South were racists. No question about this. They did not see African Americans as playing any kind of a role. So it's not just the South that is battling him. It's also Northerners who are battling him too. You know, it's okay. We we ended slavery. It's all over. Keep in mind that even, uh, even William Lloyd Garrison said, hey, we don't need any associations anymore to deal with this. It's all taken care of. Well, it wasn't taken care of. And so Grant will reach out and, uh, for example, send troops to South Carolina. But at the same time, he can't go too far because he'll lose his northern support. So it's, it's really a difficult... And his
1: father was an abolitionist, is yes, that correct? Yes, yes. So would you say that he had the heart of an abolitionist?
2: He did, but he, he kept insisting that he was not an abolitionist, that he believed in fairness to all people. And when the war is over, abolition isn't even an issue. The issue now becomes, what's going to happen to these, to these uh, uh, former slaves? Are they going to be allowed to play any kind of a role in, in society? And the intriguing thing about Grant is, other than Lincoln, there is no 19th century president, and one could almost argue that you can go far into the 20th century. There's no president that tries to do much of anything to help African-Americans play a role in society. Consider that we passed the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendments in the 1860s, it's not until the 1960s that we begin to enforce these things. In fact, what we're gonna be doing with the Grant Association, the Grant Presidential Library, we're gonna have a symposium next September on Grant and the 15th Amendment and Lyndon Johnson and the Voting Rights Act. To see how the two tie in together, and what's intriguing to me, we're going to have a bunch of justices that are going to be doing this. That should be fascinating.
1: Well, why, why, why is do people talk or associate um, Grant with corruption? Yeah. Um, where's wh- what were the problems he had with? Okay,
2: it? yeah. Was there corruption in Grant's administration? You bet there was. Uh, but keep in mind, I think, in all fairness, I. I want to put it this strong, but I, well, yeah, let me defy this audience uh, to think of any president in the 19th century, let alone in the 20th century, that didn't have some sorts of difficulties. The problem with Grant, I think, is, and, well, one of the things about Grant is nobody ever accused him of any corruption. He was, he was considered, you know, on the up and up, but there were people around him. And one of the things that Grant believed in which helped him enormously as general, but I think hurt him as president, was he had a great belief in supporting his friends. He had a very difficult time imagining that anybody associated with him wouldn't be like him, wouldn't be totally honest, wouldn't be interested in doing what was right for American, American society. So you have any number of, of people, like Orville Babcock, for example, Orville Babcock was an old friend from the Civil War, was a young man who Grant really liked and, and sent him off to uh, uh, the Dominican Republic, uh, Santa Domingo, to find a, 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 a place where the United States might be able to expand for naval reasons and for reasons of African-American uh, uh, settlement. And then he hears, does Grant, that Babcock is involved in a whiskey ring scandal. Back to whiskey again. Yeah, I thought of, never thought about that. That's right. how dare he do that. Right. Yeah, that's very good. Uh, but the the idea was that, that that Babcock was skimming tax money. That's really what it was all about, ex, the excise tax. And Grant said to his Secretary of the Treasury, I don't want anybody to go free, no matter who they are or what position they take. Yet He gives a deposition in Babcock's trial supporting him. He writes this wonderful letter to Babcock's new wife saying, you married a wonderful guy and I'll be there for him, et cetera, et cetera. So you've got got Grant pulled in in various, uh, various directions on this. He just could not believe that anybody associated with him could lie to him. Who could tell him what what really was not going on? So, yeah. So there's corruption, no question about it. Is he corrupt? No, he's not.
1: You know, I've always been curious. You mentioned him writing um, letters. I mean, did, did he have an intellectual bent? I never quite find the intellectual bent in him. But then, with he writes the greatest memoir, a literary classic.
2: Classic. Right. Now,
1: did was that ghosted by Mark Twain, or what's the <laughs> I mean, what is the background? Background. How he produced that book, and was he very well read on classics and and, uh, in world literature?
2: Good, good, good point. The thing about Grant, and I think he, I think it was just inbred in him. One of the things we 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 don't know a whole lot about uh, about Grant, but he apparently was a great reader of novels, even at at, uh, at West Point. Uh, he was not a reader of uh, classical military texts, but what was what, what was intriguing about him was that he would always be willing to to um, always able I should say to write very clearly. They'd tell the story of him sitting at his at his desk. Uh, in, out someplace in the field, and just writing out off the top of his head, writing off orders to this general, that general, and everyone was absolutely, absolutely clear. Now, why did he do the? Um, why did he do the uh, the memoirs? Well, he didn't want to do them. He said, Ah, there's been enough stuff like that done before. I shouldn't have to have to uh, write the memoirs. But you may you you may remember that a couple of things happened. Number one, Century Magazine was doing something called the Battles and Leaders of the Civil War, and they asked various Civil War generals to uh, to write up, write their story. And they came to Grant. Grant said, no, I don't want to do it. And then he said, okay, I'll, you know, I'll do it. So he wrote something on Shiloh. It was awful. It was terrible. Uh, Gilder, Richard Gilder, who was the, uh, the editor, looked at it and said, oh, my God, this is terrible. So he, he goes to the... To the uh, former president, former general, said, you know, we want you to tell us what you really think, not, not repeat your orders. So Grant rewrote it. And then he, he did something on Chattanooga. Then he did something on another battle. And he, doggone it, he came to enjoy what he was doing. So it came time to do the memoirs. He still didn't want to do that. But as you know, uh, he was swindled. He and his uh, children and his family were swindled. By a, a Baron of Wall Street. I know nobody in New York would know what that means but uh, <laughs> but in any case uh, the uh, there was a fellow named Ward who was very well known was considered one of the great great intellects of, of Wall Street. This guy knew how to make money uh, more than anybody could possibly well he was a, he was a charlatan he was an absolute charlatan so, Grant invested in this, his children invested, his family invested in this, and he took a bath to the point that he had practically no money left. So what's he going to do? Well, on top of all this, he gets cancer. Cancer of the throat, cancer of the tongue. When we get to uh, uh, elementary school kids come to our Grant Presidential Library, I give them a little lecture on not smoking, because Grant smoked 20 cigars a day, for heaven's sake. And so he had this. So he's dying. His family needs money to survive. His beloved Julia needs money to survive. So he decides he's going to write these memoirs. And he's as he gets to the last part, he can't talk anymore. He's barely hanging on, but he finishes the memoirs and he dies ten days later. Uh, So what Mark Twain? What role did he play in this? Well, Mark Twain was kind of like his business agent. Uh, he, didn't, he did none of the writing, did none of the, none of the editing. But he was kind of the business agent. And he came to Grant and said, Grant, what the Century Company's offering you is an insult. I'm starting a company and I'm gonna give you a much better uh, take, percentage. And Grant said, well, I can't do that. I already promised you know, the, the Century people. And Mark Twain said, "Well, you know, we can work something out." So they did, and it turns out that Grant made—or he did. He was dead by the time the book is published. But his wife made something like four hundred fifty thousand dollars on this book. And by the way, it was sold by subscription. It was not sold through bookstores, but subscription. So, uh, and the irony, I suppose, of the whole thing uh, is—it's the Richard L. Webster Company. And uh, Mark Twain has his brother-in-law running the operation, and he takes a cleaning on that too. You you feel
1: confident that he wrote that himself, and that your answer of where he he had a a flair for fiction because he read a lot of novels. Novels, I think that's right. He painted some, right? He was a he was a painter too. Yeah. so He had a sensitive side, and then he learned how to write first-rate field reports.
2: Right. I think that's the once
1: he then started focusing, like I'm writing a field report on on a battle, then he, he was able to go quickly and get yep. it done.
2: Yep. Okay. Yep. And, he, and again, in all fairness, too, his son, oldest son, Fred, was a big help to him because he really wanted to make sure it was accurate. And so he would get Fred and Adam Bedeau, who had written a three-volume uh, history of Grant in the war, and Grant had helped him with that, also helped out with that. But that's, yeah, I think what you're saying.
1: Now, we're going to be taking questions from the audience, so if you'd like to ask a question, please approach one of the two standing microphones in the aisles. And before asking your question, please tell us your name, and out of respect for other people waiting their turn, please ask just one question. Two staff members are on hand if you need (coughs) any assistance. My last question, briefly... If you were he were going to write a memoir of his presidency and leadership oh. in his presidency. Let's say he didn't die. Yeah,
2: yeah. And
1: he was able to write one about his presidency, what would you say is the number one thing that you the, his accomplishment as president? I like the fact that he created right. Yellowstone National Park. Right,
2: right. But right. what's
1: yours? What do you f- admire most about his presidency?
2: I think what 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 if Grant was going to write this, he would he would talk about his attempt To bring African Americans into American society. He was not successful, it's true, but I think he would be happy with that. He'd be happy with what he had done uh, uh, with the Alabama claims. And by the way, we have a member of the Grant Association who uh, happens to be British, who's an attorney by profession, and he's working on a book doing just that saying, here's what Grant would have said if he'd have. Written and the
1: negative side of him in a memoir be that he he had a lot of knucklehead friends, knucklehead was, friends, too loyal right. to them, right? <laughs> that's right, and, and was very also good. bad at his personal finance,
2: yes. yes. Okay, oh, he had the, very definitely the second, oh, no, no question yeah. about this, yeah, yes, sir. Thank you, wonderful discussion, thank you very much, gentlemen. Uh, my name is Jim Pacinich, I'm a docent here. My question deals with Grant as. A president and leadership. His leadership as a military, we know. I mean, it's pretty obvious. What leadership qualities did he would distinguish him as a president and how did they affect the country? Okay. Yeah, The the th- that's a very difficult question because, as, as I say, um, historians, and Doug made a very good point, that historians have, have really knocked Grant down over the years. You know, the the, the polls that are taken would have Grant second last or something. But in recent years, and I like to think it's because of the work John Y. Simon did in publishing the uh, uh, of the papers, that Grant is now in the middle. And historians are writing books now, people like um, uh, Joan Waugh, for example, wonderful, wonderful uh, book, uh, and, and others I they could mention. But they're taking the position, oh, no, you're missing out. This guy really did some important things. He was the first modern president. We have a, a series that we're, going, we're putting, uh, putting together called uh, uh, the, the, the Best of Grant's World. And the second book that's coming out, the first book is one that I did on tying together his, uh, the 32 volumes. But the second book is going to deal with Grant's world tour. And the lady who's writing this is a faculty member at the Air Force War College, and she's arguing, making a wonderful argument, that Grant, when he made his world tour, wasn't just having a good time, he was establishing foreign policy for the United States into the 20th century. And it's an intriguing book. It's gonna be coming out in March or April, so I, I really think it's gonna make, make a difference. But, but I think that's, that's the thing. Historians today are saying, that this guy really saw what America was and what America should be and tried to do it. Was he always successful? No, he wasn't. Yes, sir.
1: You've answered, my name is William Siegel. Uh, you answered part of my question, which was how Grant came from being the worst president along with Buchanan and Harding uh, to being in the middle of the pack. Uh, could you expand on how his rating as a president?
2: Yeah. Uh, as I said, for a long time, uh, he was ranked at the bottom. And I, and I can tell you, I think, that the main reason for that was something that, that developed in the late 19th and into the 20th century, uh, the so-called lost cause. The idea that, yeah, okay, you know, the Federals won the war, but the Confederates were really the good guys. They had the virtue. They had everything that was, that was good. And the great general of the Civil War was not Grant. Oh, my heavens, no, he was just a butcher. The great general of the Civil War was Robert E. Lee. And that attitude, I think, of building up Lee, in order to do that, you've got to knock down Grant. And so there were an awful lot of that going on, this lost cause. Keep in mind some interesting fact that that Joan Waugh mentions that until the 1920s, the biggest tourist attraction in New York City was Grant's tomb. It wasn't the Statue of Liberty, it wasn't any place else you can think of. It was Grant's tomb. So as long as that, Grant's reputation held up. But as soon as his soldiers died off, and as soon as the lost cause really took hold, he went down. But what's happening, as I say today, we've got historians that are writing books that are pointing out that no no he was uh, he was an important president the difficulty is at this point we're only at that point the general public still thinks of him as being a loser and
1: uh, I'm waiting for Ron's book to weigh in I can't wait Ron, to
2: Ron's going exp- <laughs> he's going to explain it all to us right <laughs> Yes sir my name is Norman Arnoff, and I'm an enthusiastic member of the New York Historical Society, and Great. I want to compliment you on a superb uh, presentation and discussion. Uh, the question I have is, in reference to the general presidents, Washington, Andrew Jackson, Grant, and Eisenhower, how do you compare them? Oh, goodness. <laughs> well, I, I'm going I'm to veer off a little bit. Uh, uh, because of my colleague here, but Teddy Roosevelt once said that the three greatest presidents in American history were Washington, Lincoln, and Grant. And again, that's you know that's that's an amazing amazing statement uh, uh, statement to make. Each of the the war presidents, Washington is considered one of the great presidents in American history. Certainly, so is Andrew Andrew Jackson. He was a military man, but he was really more of a civilian uh, a military man and most most of the uh, the, uh, the individuals who were presidents who came from the military uh, were not always considered the greatest individuals because many of them too, I think, understood that it, it is civilian control of the uh, of the American nation, so it was sometimes difficult for them to see themselves as being now being the the, the head civilian Hancho and doing what uh, you know what had to be done, but it's a it's it's a difficult difficult question anyway. Being a in, being a
1: general gives you a sense of leadership. It gives you a sense in of leadership. Before he became president. That
2: military background was crucial, and it was for many of our presidents. But exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Could you give us a thought on Eisenhower and, and Grant. Oh, Eisenhower and Grant. Yeah, there's there's been some work. Gene uh, Edward Smith has talked about. Uh, he's written the book on Grant written the book on Eisenhower, and he sees a, a real similarity there and it 's interesting too that eisenhower's standing among historians has uh, has gone up uh, too that he wasn 't the bumblehead that uh, you know we used to think he was, and Grant was not the bumblehead that we uh, you know that sometimes think he was
1: it might be West Point must what, yeah yeah you know, the West Point connection of the leadership at west point and and how they trained people. That, I, think that's, uh, I think
2: that's right, yeah.
1: Yes. My name is Jim Mackin. I'm a volunteer here at the New York Historical Society. The New York Historical Society has in its collection materials related to the establishment of the first cancer hospital in the United States. Uh, and with that comes a little bit of interpretation that Grant's situation, having cancer, really changed the entire country's perception of yeah. cancer. Yeah. Can you speak to that, and especially from Grant's understanding of his
2: own malady? Sure, sure. Uh, just to, before I get into that, actually Halleck's, General Halleck's wife, died from cancer. And she was a big exponent of cancer uh, research before she, before she died. But in Grant's case, uh, as I mentioned, he did, he had throat, and I mean it was awful, awful cancer. Read volume uh, 31 of the Papers of Ulysses S. Grant. <laughs> uh, I mean, when my wife and I were were, were proofreading, uh, proofreading that, I mean, there were times when we wanted to cry. It was so awful what this man was uh, what this man was going going through. But the important thing was here was the biggest figure in American society at this time. Lincoln's dead. Grant is the is the a big name. And he's dying. He's dying from cancer. To the point that New York newspapers had reporters on his doorstep, twenty-four hours a day, waiting for reports from the doctor. These reports then went out all over the country. People literally were listening to daily reports of this cancer, uh, cancer situation, uh, and it's. It, uh, it's ironic I suppose in some ways because he himself said he wrote notes to his doctor because he couldn't talk anymore and he, one time he said, you know, I don't know if these notes are going to help me, but I think they may help I hope they'll help somebody else down the road. Now keep in mind he had the greatest cancer specialist in the nation at this particular at this particular time and there's one instance where Grant goes in to see him and asks the doctor, "Um, you think, I notice when I smoke one of my cigars, it seems to irritate my throat a little (laughs) bit more. And the doctor responded, well, it doesn't really make any difference if you keep smoking, but if it makes you feel better, stop. That tells you something about the yeah. about where cancer treatment was. All they did basically was painted the cancer in his throat with the cocaine.
1: Yeah, they used to have people with asthma tell them to smoke cigarettes. Yes, yeah, that's right. That's right. We should acknowledge your wife Jean, who's worked with you on all of these volumes. Yes. Thank you for being here. Thank
2: you very much.
1: All right, we're going to have to wrap up fairly quickly, so go ahead. We'll try to keep the answers a little short. Yes, sir. Um, Okay.
0: McFeely in his uh, autobiography, in his biography, I mean, of Grant, uh, which won a Pulitzer Prize, severely criticizes him for his not enforcing voting rights in the 15th Amendment for black people, which many people feel began the next hundred years of Jim Crow. -hmm. There was widespread murder of black people. When they tried to vote, they were burnt alive in churches. And McFeely points out that when his attorney general tried to get him to take action by sending large numbers of marshals down to the South, he refused to do that and he actually fired him. Uh, I'm wondering if you can make any comment about that.
2: Yeah, that's. uh, Grant. I think you have to understand the the, the time. I I think that may be a little too strong uh, a statement about Grant's attitude. Grant did try numerous times to try to do something to to, to ensure that that blacks would have some sort of role in society. But he came to see that the more he intervened in southern uh, society, the worse things got for black people. And so I think in in some ways what what he was saying is we've got to try something else. And I think this fits into his military leadership, too, where where he would try something. If it didn't work, he'd try something different, et cetera. And that's really what he's he's attempting to do. But I think the whole issue is he's desperately hoping to find something that will help. Uh, But American society is just too racist to accept anything.
1: Okay, we have the, we're gonna wrap up. We have two people that have been standing, so this microphone we're gonna close off, and now we'll get b- both of your questions, and we'll call it an evening.
0: Uh, I'm Sue Khan, I'm an educator here at the New York Historical Society, and you spoke of the advocacy that he had for the African American, but I've also heard tell that he was quite the advocate for
2: Native Americans, and I wondered what the source of that was, whether it was from him or from the people around him, or a combination of both. Uh, of what now I missed of who? Native Americans. Oh Native Americans. Well actually he his Indian policy, so-called Indian policy, the peace plan, as he called it, was actually a, a major change. That is, he attempted to change the way the Native American was was treated by by actually setting up a different kind of um, of system. Uh, and what he did is, is he took it away from the army and he tried to give it to missionaries and he appointed Eli Parker, one, his Seneca Indian aide during the Civil War to be commissioner of, of Indian affairs. Uh, and the, the result was didn't work because people simply would not accept the idea that the Native American could indeed have any kind of particular rights. Uh, one of my favorite stories about Jonathan Sarna, who's, who's uh, written a book on the, uh, the famous uh, anti-Jew order uh, that Lincoln, that uh, Grant issued and tried to get over for the rest of his life, but what he, what he did was he appointed some Jewish rabbis to be head of the chaplains of the, in the Indian peace policy. And you can imagine how that went over in 19th century America. So, anyway, thank you. Don't ask me a tough question now. Here we are. Our last Uh-oh. question. This could be rough. Got to lower the mic. Yep.
0: <laughs>
1: um, my name William Peterson, and I'm studying Ulysses S. Grant for my biography research. Um, and in one book I read that his original name was Hiram Ulysses Grant. Yes and then West Point got her as Ulysses S. Grant, and they wouldn't change it, so we had to change his name?
2: Yes, that's a good, very good question. Oh, I'm sorry.
1: (laughs) But in another book, I read that he he was named after a Greek hero, Ulysses, and I thought his name was Hiram.
2: Okay, okay. Yeah. His, Thank you. His, That's very great, good. Great yeah. observation. That's, I wish I'd had you in class when I was teaching. <laughs> good. Uh, yeah. He was, a, when he was born, he was called Hiram Ulysses Grant. But they always, his family always called him by his middle name. Nobody ever called him uh, Hiram. But if you look at that, if you look at that name, Hiram Ulysses Grant, and look at the first three letters, I mean the first letter of each one of the words, you get the word hug. And Grant never liked that. He thought that was, oh, that was just horrible. And you can imagine what the boys in the neighborhood had to say, had to, say to him. So anyway, so he, his father decides he's going to go to West Point. And his father's a whole other story. We could spend an evening on his father, uh, who was just, a, well, an amazing individual. But he found out that you could go to West Point free, he said, Euless, that's where you're going. You're going to West Point. And uh, in his memoirs, he says, so I said to my father, I didn't think I'd go to West Point. And my father said, that, yes, I would go to West Point. So I decided, yeah, I guess I better go to West Point. But anyway, when he gets to West Point, he's carrying this letter of appointment from a local congressman. And the local congressman couldn't remember he remembered that they called him Ulysses, and he knew his mother's maiden name was Simpson. So he wrote down Ulysses S. Grant. The S stood for nothing. I mean, it was not anything. So anyway, so he goes in, and any of you that have been in the, in the Army or the military will appreciate this. Grant shows up with this piece of paper, and he goes up to the sergeant who's taking care of these things, and he says, uh, I'm... Hiram Ulysses Grant. And by this time, he's trying to call himself Ulysses Hiram Grant to get away from the hug thing. But the sergeant looks and he says, no, you're not. (laughs) You're Ulysses S. Grant. And Grant says, no, I'm not. And the sergeant says, well, if you want to get into West Point, (laughs) that's your name. And if you want to go back and talk to your congressman, we'd be happy to accept you a year from now. So Grant said, okay, I'm Ulysses S. Grant. But for, for a couple months, when he was at West Point, he still signed his name Ulysses Hiram Grant, just to make the point. Thanks. Very good, good question. question.